Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Caitlin Long. Caitlin is a 22-year veteran of Wall Street who has been active in Bitcoin for about 10 years now. She's the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, a bank formed to serve as a compliant bridge between digital assets and the US dollar payment system. She's also been instrumental in making her home state of Wyoming an oasis of Bitcoin companies in the US, helping lawmakers to enact 20 Bitcoin-enabling laws. She joins us today to discuss Bitcoin and financial markets and leverage and all of the problems that we witness around the world economy today. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. I guess we should uh, start with uh, you updating us about uh, what's been going on with uh, Custodia Bank and uh, your activities in Wyoming. 
Well, heads down, playing very much the long game. So not too much in the news these days. We did announce publicly that Custodia received its Certificate of Authority to Operate from the Wyoming Division of Banking. So we will have some announcements about what that actually means fairly soon, but it looks like we'll be the first one of the Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions to begin operating as a data bank. That's a new, a new phrase we've coined, dollar and digital asset bank that is designed to link the two. And what's different about the banks is that the banks can, can handle U.S. dollar deposits. We're authorized to handle U.S. dollar deposits, whereas most of the intermediaries in the digital asset world are not. They have to still clear U.S. dollars through a third-party bank. Excellent. And you've obviously been beating the drum of the importance of Bitcoin banking and the importance of building it on a sound basis that is free from rehypothecation so that it does not devolve into the same kind of problems that we see with uh, the fiat system. So how is Custodia going to be different in that regard? How is it going to differentiate itself from your Citibanks and JP Morgans? I mean, we're here that now, you know, even JP Morgan, where Jamie Dimon is constantly going on about how much he hates Bitcoin, they still offer their clients access to Bitcoin. So how is that going to be different? If I'm considering buying Bitcoin through a bank, how would it be different to do it through Custodia or uh, one of the uh, ancient regime, ancien regime uh, fiat banks? (laughs) Well, the biggest difference is that the Wyoming special purpose depository institutions can't lend. So they're required to be 100% reserve banks. And that's really not that different from the money transmitter statutes in the U.S. So a lot of the companies in the U.S. are licensed as money transmitters, and they're required to hold 100% reserves. They can't lend. They can't take a lot of asset risk. In the case of Custodia, our, our proposal to the Fed is to literally hold $1.08 in cash for every dollar of, of U.S. dollar deposits. Uh, now, I'm not talking about Bitcoin as a deposit. The, the phrase deposit is very specific in the banking world to mean a U.S. dollar deposit. So how does Bitcoin factor in? It's, it's through the trust services of the bank. It's not something that the bank would own directly. It would be something that the bank would provide trust services for, specifically custody and all the services related to custody, like prime services. Custodia also has in our in our specific case not every Wyoming speedy is is the same by the way it's just a tribute to human human ingenuity how different the business models are of the different speedy banks having a bank that can't lend but can provide custody services through the trust powers of the bank for bitcoin and other digital assets everybody has a very different business model there are four of us chartered and there are more more on the way and it's just fun to see how you know, how human creativity came into play and the different business models have been created. But in Custodia's case, we also want to provide a U.S. dollar that actually rides as a second layer on top of Bitcoin and on top of Ethereum. We have to, for risk reasons, have two different blockchains so that if one goes down, then we can burn and reissue on the other. So that's the only reason that that we have it as uh, that we have two different base layer blockchains. The next piece is... Uh, is is for, for Bitcoin, I'm sure we'll talk about this, is is the second layer. Boy, there's so much going on in the second layer uh, part of Bitcoin. And I'm so excited about all of it. Uh, and that's, that's where the scaling technology is coming. And I actually think that, um, and I published a, a piece in Forbes this uh, uh, on Friday, 
that kind of went viral where, t- where I talked about how uh, this is the ba- basically Bitcoin is money over internet protocol. It's going to do what, what to the banking industry, what voice over internet protocol did to the telecom industry when it scales. And we can see the scaling technology. It's here. It's called the lightning network. And the, the, the banks are going to, if they survive, have to pivot to become software application providers, just like the big telcos did. And the interesting question is, will the regulators let them? And uh, there's a big debate going on because the, the regulators are, of course, very afraid of, of a lot of these technologies. And they are, they are trying to figure out how to to use Andreas's phrase, how to, how to, how to force corpo coin into the banking industry, that it's only, it's, it's only the permissioned walled garden protocols that the banks are allowed to use, you know, the JPM coins of the world, um, as opposed to actually using the money over internet protocols like Bitcoin, where you can issue a US dollar token as a, as a second layer instrument on Bitcoin. So here we go. Okay, so, I mean, this sounds like you're just giving away money. Like banking, the whole point of banking is that you get to print your own money and you're taking all the fun part out of it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, I absolutely. Mean, yeah, it's like going to a party with no music and nothing, <laughs> uh, just sitting there silently. Yeah, but it's legit, bro. It's very much a, 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 a commitment to property rights. And I know we have very similar philosophies about that. <laughs> I know, but I have to kind of pretend to disagree to make this interesting. So like, <laughs> I mean, shouldn't you be just focused on making more money? Who cares about people's property no. rights, right? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because, uh, you know, this whole thing's a passion project for me. It's, I, I'm four years into it. I didn't expect to start a bank. But part of the problem is that when you create a, a legal and regulatory regime, if nobody uses it, it's useless. Somebody has to be able to test it. Somebody has to be in the, in the arena. Somebody has to be willing to take all the the slings and arrows that are fired at the person who's in, who's leading that pack. And that's been us. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I felt, of course, a lot of obligation to Wyoming to make sure after Wyoming spent all this time getting the new bank charter set up that somebody had to use it. And when nobody else, there were more than 150 groups that tried in the beginning and the Wyoming division of banking turned them down because they, they knew they either they didn't have enough capital to be credible or they wouldn't necessarily have made it through the fed. We can talk about that because boy, have I learned a lot. Uh, and of course we're not through the fed either. Nobody is. Uh, uh, but um, it, a lot of it has to do with the management team and the experience in traditional banking. Right. And so that, that turns then into how does the digital, how does the Bitcoin industry and digital assets broadly plug into the banking world? We've seen a lot of problems in that regard, right? We've seen one company, I won't use names, but one company that, that got a trust bank charter, a national trust charter, end up with a cease and desist order on compliance less than a year after beginning operations. That's a big black, black eye from the bank regulator's perspective. We've seen another company that was subject to a $1.2 billion takeover offer, not be able to get audited financial statements. Okay, so it's really difficult to make crypto companies backwards compatible into the existing bank regulatory regime. Now, the existing bank regulatory regime has not let any of us in yet, but it's coming. I'm confident it's coming. I wouldn't be spending time on it if it weren't. And a lot of it is just rolling up sleeves and figuring out how to to merge the two systems in a safe and sound manner, uh, and some of you might think I'm crazy. In fact, there were a lot of comments on the 
on the Forbes piece asking about why are you bothering? Why, why aren't we just going around the banks? And, and if I thought hyper-Bitcoinization was going to happen tomorrow, of course, I wouldn't be spending my time doing this. I don't think we're ready yet, though. And that's the challenge that I have to this industry. We're not scaled yet. We're getting there. It's coming. We can see the proverbial undersea cables being laid, just like I remember in, you know, 1999, 2000, right? And then broadband really hit and scaled in 2003. So if you go back to the analogy of voice over internet protocol, it was invented in 1995. And it really hit in 2003 when the scaling technology enabled it to, to, to tip, so to speak. And that's happening here. It's taking, you know, not exactly the same path. It, it's rhyming, not, not, not replicating the same path, but it's the same. And it's the same as any disruptive technology. Once you get the scaling tool, then, then it takes over. And so do I believe ultimately that it will? Of course. But I think it's probably a 10, at least a 10 year process. And in the meantime, we need those those bridges to be open between the US dollar system and the Bitcoin ecosystem. And I've said for years, and echoing Ryan Selkis's warning, we, we, we really do have a single point of failure issue in the Bitcoin industry, which is the US dollar banks. There are really only two that service the, the entire Bitcoin industry in the US. And as a result, if either one of those ended up with regulatory issues, it, it would be a challenge for us as an industry. So that was one of the problems that we set about solving in the first place, is making sure that, that the Bitcoin industry had durable U.S. dollar banking service access while it still matters. And I do, do believe it still matters and will for, for quite some time still. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah. You know, in the, in the fiat standard, I mentioned the example of something uh, called the narrow bank. I'm sure you've heard yeah. about it. This was a few years ago. There was a bank that came up with a very uh, ingenious idea. I mean, ingenious, but also like the most boring, simple idea, which is they suggested, you know, look around everywhere, anyone, well, at least a few years ago, everybody was just looking for something that was going to protect them from inflation. Obviously, now it's a much more pressing problem. But this is yeah. 2018, I think, 2019. 
And their idea was we, as a bank, we can put our reserves at the Federal Reserve and earn a a small rate of interest on it. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is we're just going to set up a deposit bank where it really does the narrow banking, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why it's called the narrow bank. So as a depositor, I'd go and I'd give them $1,000 and they would take those $1,000 and go and put them at the Federal Reserve, do nothing else. They're not going to lend out. They're not going to do anything. They're just going to put it at the Federal Reserve, which is basically the safest place you could put dollars in the world. You may, we may agree or disagree about the level of safety in it, but we can't, I think, disagree about the fact that it is the safest place for dollars because dollars, correct. Yeah, for everywhere else, dollars are going to have more risk than at the place where they get printed. So putting the dollars at the Federal Reserve and getting what I think at that time was around one and a half percent or two percent interest on their reserves and then offering their customers a smaller interest on that. So they'd get 2% from the Fed and they'd give you 1%. And they were not granted a license to operate. And the idea was, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, you think of it, why would the Federal Reserve not want to do something like this? It's the safest business model possible. All that they do is take my money and put it in the Federal Reserve and then take a small cut from it. So it's clearly not a risky business model. It's clearly very sustainable, at least the most sustainable thing within the dollar system. But you know, the reason that the Federal Reserve turned it down is, I think, not because they were worried about this bank itself. They were worried about the rest of the banking system. Because I think if you did offer people access to the Federal Reserve's uh, reserves, essentially, and gave them a 1% interest on it, that would probably eat... I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 50, 60% of financial markets because so many people would gladly give up on gambling on um, stocks they don't understand and bonds they don't understand and commodities and foreign currencies and all kinds of different complicated financial instruments. And crypto and DeFi. <laughs> and right? crypto yeah. and DeFi and all of that stuff. If you could just put part of your money at the Federal Reserve and get a small return, I mean, obviously it won't really beat inflation, but protects you from the downside significantly. I think that would just cause pretty much everywhere else to be in trouble. So the real reason that model was not allowed to proceed was because, not not because it's dangerous, but because it is everything else that's dangerous. And this thing would just expose how everything else is dangerous, right? Okay, there's such an, so much to unpack here. First of all, technically, they've not been told no. First of all, their, their application is still outstanding. And it's a Connecticut uninsured state chartered bank that applied for a Fedmaster account. Just recently, I, I read, extended the state charter in the hopes that, that at some point there, there will be a decision from the Fed, but they have not actually made a decision. It's now more than five years, I believe, and no decision has been made. The Fed did put out a proposed rulemaking called the Pass-Through Investment Entity Rulemaking that would prohibit a bank like that from just passing through interest on reserves. So what's so interesting is that I've spent a lot of time differentiating Custodia from that model because that's not what Custodia is. Custodia is a hybrid custody bank for digital assets and a payment bank. So we're, we, we proposed to issue a US dollar on Bitcoin as the base layer. That's a very different business model. That's a payment instrument. And of course, we're, for those who've dug in, you know that, we, we're, that, that our proposal is to issue it as a liquid token. So it's a, it's a layer two token on top of Bitcoin, but 
anchored to Bitcoin. Um, so, so a layer two, lots of folks will call Liquid a side chain. Uh, it's really it, technically that that's the more correct term than layer two, but it's all layer two. It's it's because it's all running on Bitcoin as the base layer is, is how I'm looking at it. So one of the interesting questions about these new technologies, I call them new, of course, none of us think of them as new, but they're new to the banking industry, is the whole question of velocity. And you being an, a, an economist, it's really, you'll, 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 I think, appreciate the way of framing it this way. Monetary velocity used to come from leverage, okay? We were all taught, if you took economics in college, that the monetary base, M0, gets multiplied. And it used to be multiplied times 10, right? So M1 would be 10 times M0, right? And that, because basically money gets propagated, gets created through the banking system. So that, that's a two-layered system as well. You've got the base money, and then you've got 10 times the M1 or M2 or whatever the multiplier ended up being. 10, 10 was what we usually learned in school. Okay, so that's how fractional reserve banking worked. And the only way you got monetary velocity was to push base money through the traditional financial system. And up until the early 1980s, 1983 specifically in my own research, it used to be that when the Fed injected reserves into the system, in other words, created monetary base, printed money, whatever you want to call it, that within six months, you saw it propagate through the banking industry. It happened about that quickly. And it was a pretty easy dial for the Fed to turn. That was back when the Fed controlled the quantity of money. In 1983, they flipped. And instead of trying to control the quantity of money, because the euro dollar market had started to become so big, they decided not to try to control the quantity of money and instead to control the price of money. You're controlling one or the other. So they, start, they, they started to target the Fed funds rate, which is the price of borrowing money, as opposed to the quantity of money. And they left the quantity of money to the financial industry to figure out. And of course, the financial industry really went to town. And that's when you started to see the securities industry take off. And the monetary inflation ended up showing up largely in the securities market as opposed to in consumer prices. All right. But let me tie it back to what we just talked about, though, because it's so important. Why did it? Why, why did we need to have velocity created through leverage, through fractional reserve banking? It fundamentally was a technology problem because it took so long for payments to settle. Now, we have the ability for payments to settle at the speed of light. We don't need velocity in our payment systems to come from leverage anymore. Now it's so interesting. This is and this is again. I'm st- I'm sidestepping the whole fractional reserve banking debate. I'm coming at it from the perspective of this was a technology problem. We've now we've now got the technology to solve that problem. It, I think everybody would agree that a non-leveraged financial system is inherently more stable than a leveraged one, right? So if we don't need velocity to be created through leverage anymore. And we can start to create the velocity through the, through the payment technology itself. Now we can, we can see a pathway to a far more stable financial system. So how do we get from there to here is exactly where I'm spending all my time. And, and I do believe Nick Carter is right when he says that stable coins are going to extend the U.S. dollar's reign as global reserve currency. Now, I know there are a lot of people who will debate whether that's a good thing. Interestingly, People on both sides of the political spectrum, proverbially, will debate whether that's a good thing. But I think it's a fact. 
our payment technology in the U.S. is so antiquated, especially relative to the rest of the world. It's really embarrassing for the U.S. to be the world's reserve currency with such antiquated payment technology. And here comes from left field something that the regulators would never have approved had it not been invented outside of the regulatory regime, which is stable coins. And now that's, that's going to allow the U.S. dollar to leapfrog the rest of the world in terms of payment technologies if the bank regulators approve it and let it through. And that's exactly where I'm spending my time. Your question is so prescient because this whole debate over whether the crypto industry is a threat to fractional reserve banking is so important. And my answer is we don't have to make that choice. We, the, the technology gives us the velocity in a way that it didn't before. But here's another critical piece. I think the, the bank regulators are afraid of the banks that are going to use these technologies inside the banking industry to issue U.S. dollars, which is why they haven't been approved yet. But here's the aha. The crypto industry already pulled $600 billion of deposits out of the fractional reserve banking industry, out of the traditional banks. Who's the bigger threat to the traditional banking industry with all the fractional reserve leverage inside it? Is it the crypto industry that can just go around it? and pull deposits out probably permanently? Or is it those that are trying to work from inside it and keep the deposits inside the banking industry? And that's what Custodia is and others as well. Uh, and none of us have been let through yet. So I'm, I'm flipping the whole debate on its side and turning it into a technology debate because frankly, the technology is not going away. And if bank regulators want to try to force everybody to stay in these old antiquated systems that are not even cloud-based, much less API-based, um, then, then good luck because the tech industry will just keep going around them. And exhibit A for that is Jack Dorsey. Look at what he's doing with Lightning. I just saw Strike announced a $90 million funding round today. Look at what's going on, folks. It's, it, it, again, the proverbial undersea cables are being laid before our very eyes. And that analogy to what happened to the telecom industry with, with voice over internet protocol is apt. The regulators allowed the banks to pivot. And let's see what the bank regulator, or sorry, the regulators allowed the telecom companies to pivot back then and adopt voice over internet protocol. They didn't disappear. They became application and service providers that made the user interface really simple. And that's what I think all of the crypto companies will end up becoming. The, the banks will not go away. They will be what they used to be back when we had property rights in, in our financial assets, which is service providers, non-leveraged, and not able to lend. And, and that will not be a far more money. stable world. Exactly. A far more stable world. So what are your reactions to that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the, the, in the fiat standard, essentially the, the argument that I make is that I look at the fiat system in the same way that I looked at the Bitcoin system. You know, I tried to explain it to a, a noob who doesn't know how it works from first principles. And the conclusion that I come up with is that essentially because of the limitations of gold, because of the difficulty of moving gold around, right. gold becomes expensive. And yep. as in the 19th century, as global trade became a lot faster, a lot more frequent, you know, we had trains and ships, steamships that could travel very quickly. We started developing cars and telegrams. And so communication and information could flow very quickly. Gold couldn't keep up. Correct. Um, you, you couldn't move gold physically every time you would move goods. You know, up until maybe the 15th century, this was feasible because things moved around very slowly. But then as things started moving around faster, then you couldn't move the physical gold. And so what you had to move was the credit 
of gold. So credit of the banking institution that holds the gold, which leads to the centralization of the gold. And so essentially, what you ended up with, because of the limited spatial saleability of gold, you ended up with the credit of the bank and the government that guarantees the banks and the central banks becoming money. It's just, and, and, and it's another way of stating the same point that you were making, which is that once the money becomes difficult to move around, then the way you move it around is that you have to move around the credit. Well, then that just gives the person who issues that credit effectively the ability to issue money. Their credit is as good as money. Um, so whether I have gold backing my credit fully or I have a little bit more credit than the gold that I have in behind, behind it, it's not going to matter unless everybody shows up and try and redeem to try and redeem all their gold at the same time. And of course, the more the trade becomes globalized, the more people have to rely on your bank and central bank because the gold in their pocket under their mattress is essentially neutered. You can't move it around. It's good for paying your local grocers, but it's not good for anybody else. And the mass majority of your goods become sourced from all over the world. You need it to move around. So you need it to rely on the bank. So this is what gives banks the ability to make money effectively because we have to rely on them in order to move their money. And just I'm summarizing a very long book, um, but you know, the, 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 the spoiler alert is that Bitcoin fixes this because Bitcoin allows us to move the actual asset itself quickly rather than the credit of somebody else. And I think you know, the, um, your analogy with the telecoms is very important, but I think the distinction is that telecoms still required physical infrastructure that needed to be laid down and governments needed to allow that. You, know, you had to have uh, all these giant wires for broadband and telecoms and all of that stuff. And um, they could have stopped it. And they did stop it in many places. You know, there are places that were very, very late to join the party because their governments thought uh, the internet was dangerous. <laughs> but with Bitcoin, you know, that boat has sailed. We already have the infrastructure. I doubt they're going to be tearing down the internet completely in order to stop this. And then once the internet is there, once the infrastructure is there, then you don't really need any kind of permissioned infrastructure in order to operate that because, you know, any computer, any old laptop, any Raspberry Pi can function as essentially a bank, a Bitcoin bank. You know, you run a lightning node and you can move money, you can move Bitcoin around the world at the speed of light. And um, obviously, obviously, governments can do things to stop and hamper this, but it's a lot more difficult than with physical banks. So I guess the question here is, what exactly is the case for why you would want to ask for permission for something like this rather than just building it on digital rails? And I guess, you know, we've hosted Paolo Arduino here from Tether. And I, I, I think it was, I, I think for me, the real coming of age moment for Tether was a few months ago when we had this massive liquidation in the crypto markets. So many things got liquidated. So many businesses went out of business and so many feces coins uh, were uh, <laughs> Good riddance. liquidated. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Tether had to redeem something like, oh, I think it was $9 billion in a month or $7 billion in a week or something like that. So some insane number. And it's, you know, at that point, the, the question that I wanted to ask Paolo is, well, what would happen if somebody did the same thing for JP Morgan? You know, can you redeem $7 billion out of JP Morgan in a week? You know, his idea was that the last time this thing happened, the banks went, the bank that suffered this went under. And I think it's very true. I don't think uh, even the most well-regulated, most conservative fiat bank 
can handle this level of redemption in such a short period. You know, they have so little reserves that um, if a significant amount of their depositors were to come and ask for their money back, it would create a liquidity and likely a solvency event. Whereas with Tether, uh, the fact that they were able to uh, put all of this information and uh, that they could receive all of these redemptions and still cash them out is an enormous, enormous proof of their solvency and their ability to redeem. And I think also their integrity, because arguably uh, there's a very good chance that they're never going to have as much money under uh, their control as they did a few months ago when they were, I think, at $60 billion dollars. So, you know, now we are in a bear market. Who knows if there's going to be another bull market for Tether where more and more money comes in. So, like, if they wanted to exit scam, that was it. That was the point. And yet they just redeemed $7 billion or $10 billion, whatever. So it's it's an extremely powerful idea, I think. And, yeah, it's 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 spreading like wildfire. I see it all over the world. I know in Lebanon people are using it. It's the in only Lebanon, way that you can yeah. access. Yeah, the banks are yeah, closed, and yeah. you can just use yeah. this, and it's uh, it's yeah. effortless and seamless. You know, for me, the really exciting thing is when this can be implemented on Lightning. And then, because currently, you know, you're still paying relatively high transaction fees because it's built on all of these blockchains that can't really scale. So you're paying something like half a dollar, one dollar, sometimes five dollars, as a transaction fee, which is unworkable for most people for day-to-day transactions, particularly in the developing world. But once you have a one cent transaction fee, I think that's really going to be the tipping point. So what do you see as the advantages of trying to go with a regulated institution under the framework of the Federal Reserve, as opposed to just ask for forgiveness rather than permission? Yeah, well, I've never met Paolo. I've I've never con- connected. There, I, at one point, I was pretty critical that they should have been a lot more open kimono than they had been. And they have been sort of grudgingly pushed by the market to open the kimono, so to speak. But here's the issue. That's not anything fiat stablecoin, fiat backed stablecoin is not going around the existing system. And so at any point in time, the regulators could shut that off. And here's what I mean. Every US dollar that... That it, that is not an algorithmic U.S. dollar trying to replicate it. I'll set the set the algo coins aside. They're they're their whole different can of worms. I'm talking about the fiat backed ones like Tether, etc. Those are subject to being shut off by regulators at any point in time because every U.S. dollar has to clear through the Federal Reserve, whether it's directly or indirectly. And I have no idea who the clearing bank is that's handling Tether's reserves, but some clearing bank is handling them. It's probably a couple of layers because so many in this industry end up going through a couple of layers of intermediaries. And the regulators, I think, are, they're on to this and they do have they do have ways of shutting things down. Um, there's a single point of failure risk for a lot of the unlicensed players in this industry right now, which is there are, a lot of them are using licensing as a service, hanging off an intermediary. I won't. I won't name the name. The name, but some states have started to shut down that intermediary's access, and there's been a lot of complaining because wait a minute. In certain states, the most recent one was South Dakota. Now, some of the Bitcoin companies can't do business with customers. Why? Well, because that intermediary has been shut off by the by the regulators. Okay, so what I'm describing is is the point I tried to make earlier. The U.S. dollar bridge is pretty precarious in this industry, and we still need it. So 
the, the innovations that have happened around that, and even some of the Bitcoin-only companies could only exist because there was an open bridge to US dollars somewhere. And at some point, let's just presume that the entire thing gets shut off. You were talking about maybe they won't shut off the internet. Well, even if they do, right? Blockstream's got Bitcoin nodes running on satellites, right? I've seen uh, you know, a couple of ham radio transactions. It was most recently a ham radio lightning transaction. I've actually seen a ham radio Bitcoin transaction live. Okay, so we don't even need the internet for, that, for the network to continue to operate technically. But um, all that said, l- let's get back to... What if the government tried to shut everything off? What if literally no U.S. dollar access were ever available again? What would happen? Has there been enough value that migrated from the traditional financial system into Bitcoin to keep it going? Yes, absolutely. But would it hamstring us and set us back as an industry? Yes, absolutely. So coming back to your question, why am I bothering to ask for permission instead of forgiveness? Look at the companies that have tried to ask for forgiveness to try to get inside the regulatory perimeter. They haven't been able to make it. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, this industry likes to, to throw shade against the regulators. But part of the reason is that they haven't been able to make it due to their own fault. And so uh, whether we like it or agree with it, the, 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 the laws are the laws and the regulators will enforce them. And so if they go in and start to see that an intermediary played fast and loose with some of the laws that they were required to adhere to, or they can't get, and because they had financial controls that were so bad, they weren't able to get an auditor to, to create, to, to provide audited financial statements. Of course, to get inside the regulatory perimeter, you've got to have audited financial statements. And then if, if an auditor won't touch you, and there's probably a reason why, right? And this is my point that we, I think there's going to be a big, a big why in the industry the unregulated players that can't get regulated go in one direction. And then the regulated players, like it or not, that can get regulated, come inside the regulatory perimeter. And that's where the disruption of the traditional system happens in the right way, because it's a pivot to the new technologies to using right now for the next decade or so, US dollars that run on Bitcoin. Um, But ultimately, of course, you can't separate the technology from the asset in Bitcoin, as you know. And so, of course, as, as we deepen the real adoption, I'm not talking about trading. I hate a lot of the trading that has happened in this industry. Trace Mayer and I had a debate about this very point last night. All the trading in this industry has been bad. He, he disagrees with me that it's all been bad. Some of it, of course, has been. But he thinks that's part of the, you know, the, the field testing of Bitcoin in, in, in real life. And he, and he sees some value to that. I look at it and say, that's just fiat thinking applied to Bitcoin. They've set us back. And this has been bad for our industry. I would much rather gotten real adoption as opposed to the Wall Street hedge fund community coming in and, and not just the old, old hedge funds. I'm talking about traders who left their firms and then came into Bitcoin and b- built their own firms that replicated fiat thinking, looking at Bitcoin as their latest plaything that they could lever up and rehypothecate. Um, that has been bad unequivocally in my mind for our industry. We should focus on real adoption as opposed to just using Bitcoin as the latest plaything for traders. I mean, I'm a little bit more, I don't judge the universe when it comes to this because sure they come in and yeah, it does give a bad reputation, but they do get wrecked eventually. And that gives us cheap <laughs> they coins. All do. So I can't, I can't <laughs> complain. 
that's <laughs> Trace's point too. It's a, you know he 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 uh, coined the phrase apex predator. Bitcoin's the apex predator of finance, and I completely agree with that. They all get wrecked, and they you know proof of coins at some point gets very real. Proof of keys rather gets very real, yeah. and it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, one small thing I think with Tether is that they might already be at the point where they're too big to fail in the sense that I looked at the numbers for this. I don't think anybody else has compared it, but they are currently somewhere around the 20th biggest holder of US treasuries among central banks. So this is, you're talking about a medium-sized country's holdings of uh, treasuries, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, serious business for the U.S. Like the U.S. will go to war with a country that decides to dump their treasuries and stop using the U.S. dollar. I mean, maybe, potentially, who knows? But like, it's, it's, a, big, it's, it's a big directive of U.S. foreign policy that you need to keep using the dollar and you need to hold our treasuries because if they don't do that, the dollar stops being a reserve currency. A lot of people say it's, about the pricing of oil. I don't buy that. I don't think it matters what you price your oil in. You can price your oil in uh, the Swedish currency or the Saudi currency or the, yeah, all of these things are liquidly traded with one another. So it doesn't matter what you set the price in. What matters is what you hold in your cash reserve. And so if you're holding US dollars, it doesn't matter. Like we've been hearing this, you know, particularly in gold circles, you and I, it's been maybe 30 years, I, I haven't been following for 30 years, but maybe it's been 30 years that uh, people have been saying, oh, the China and Russia are going to start trading in their own currencies. Saudi Arabia and India are going to start trading in their own currency and cut out the dollar. It doesn't make sense. Even if they do do it, it's just as long as they're both holding U.S. treasuries, then it doesn't matter what they denominated. You know, denominated in the Saudi or Swedish or Indian currency. At the end of the day, the Swedish people have no use for Saudi currency and the Saudi people have no use for Swedish currency. So they're all going to sell whatever it is that they use and hold on to uh, US dollar treasuries. So that's what really matters. The holding of treasuries is what keeps the US dollars reserve currency status. And uh, at this point, I, I mean, I don't think this has become a conscious policy or directive of the US yet from what I can tell, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does that somebody will just realize, hey, you know what? We don't need the Brazilian central bank and the Saudi central bank and the Lebanese central bank and the Turkish central bank in order to uh, get our dollars to be used by the peoples of those countries. Tether does the job more reliably, more stably, with more financial stability because they are, they're not over leveraged. They seem to actually hold a very large percentage of their holdings in actual treasuries and dollar denominated assets which means that it's a more stable way of getting the demand of Turkey onto the US dollar to go through Tether than it is to go through the Turkish Central Bank because the Turkish Central Bank wants to run its own monetary policy and it has its own president and prime minister who have all kinds of insane ideas that they want to implement, which can only be done with inflation. And that kind of undercutting on this, undercutting the seniorage that the US could make from having Turkish people just holding US dollars directly, which is what is effectively what they're doing with Tether. You know, Tether would take a very tiny cut compared to what the Turkish Central Bank does, which then makes, you know, once the lira gets wrecked and people in Turkey get wrecked, then they can't hold as much US dollars as they could. So um, maybe, maybe maybe the way forward is that they're going to let these stable coins, specifically the ones that are not algorithmic, as you said, the, the algorithmic mm-hmm. ones are different. They're going to let these prosper because they're better than the foreign central banks. Well, again, the, the challenge is, I, I think the, the regulators haven't 
I know that the regulators haven't opined on this yet. They've let it go for now, but it's happening without the official blessing of the organization that clears every single US dollar payment, the Federal Reserve. And if they decide at some point to cut that off, then it goes away. So the challenge, and it, by the way, it goes away in, in, immediately. So the, the challenge becomes what regulatory risk are the users taking in the non-bank stable coins? There's not a bank version yet. And, and that, that's the real question. And so far, there hasn't been a regulatory rug pull of US dollar stable coins, fiat-backed stable coins. That doesn't mean there won't be. Look at how long it took the SEC to go after Ripple. It took them seven years and the statute of limitations was five years. So they just basically leaned on Ripple to agree to extend it. And that's why it took them seven years before they finally filed, filed suit. Things move at very, very fast pace in our world, but in the regulatory crackdown world, they move at a shockingly slow pace, but that doesn't mean that they don't end up happening. Right. So you're seeing stuff as, as much as five years later, prosecutions for violations of various laws. Now, I don't know how this all is going to play out. Right. It's, it's in some ways, it's been surprising to me how much the regulators have let happen because they haven't stepped in with cease and desist orders. And the ones that they've gone after are the ones that have asked for permission or have tried to play within the regulatory sandbox. A couple of the SEC filers, right, are great examples of that. They were slapped down while, while the unregulated players were allowed to just keep going. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the crypto lending world. And then we saw those crypto lending companies explode and a couple are in bankruptcy. So, you know, who was right there is a really interesting question. But it is, it is safe to say the regulators have gone after the ones that they can more easily get, which are not the ones that are the worst actors in this space. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to get the worst actors. I think they will. And the question is just a, it's just a matter of time. They're building up evidence against some of the, the bad players in this industry. And I will say again, good riddance to those bad players. They've been hurting the rest of us who are trying to build something very meaningful and sustainable and not using risky business models in, in this industry. And I don't know how it all shapes out. It remains to be seen that the final chapter is, of course, far from written on, on all of this. Yeah, so a lot has happened over the last few months, year um, uh, in, 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 in the crypto market. You know, you have uh, spent many, many years talking about the dangers of rehypothecation, fractional reserve banking, and saying that they don't mix with Bitcoin. Please go ahead, do some victory laps for us. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, look, I, I will say, unfortunately, a lot of innocent people got hurt. There were also a lot of people who knew they were rolling the dice and obviously are licking wounds. And, and that's tragic. And, and this latest bull market, every bull market pulls in noobs and noobs get burned because they tend to sort of follow the momentum. We do have a very distinct four-year cycle. I'm not part of the group that thinks the four-year cycle is done. I think we have a very distinct four-year cycle and will always in, in Bitcoin. And, and the rest of the crypto industry follows that four-year cycle for that same reason. I lament the fact that so many scammers pulled in Innocent people who got hurt. And, and this time, there were more people who were unbanked and there were more people who, it, it wasn't just the sort of, it, you know, tech forward, early adopter community. It got more mainstream this time and a lot of people got burned. And I really do 
feel sorry for that and, and wish that those folks had not been pulled in by the, by the scammers and by the speculators. Again, a, you know, a lot of people will push back on me and say, where's the personal responsibility? People, pe- these are voluntary systems and people are voluntarily associated with them and they have free will to do that. And all of that is true. They, but I also believe as, as someone who's very firmly committed to property rights, that one of the things that is necessary in financial services is, is, is information symmetry. And th- that in property, if you are truly committed to property rights, you don't support information asymmetry. And Front, there was a lot of hide the ball. Exactly. And there was a lot of hide the ball, even among the players that weren't true criminals. They were just pursuing risky business models. They were still hiding the ball and not disclosing. And if you are truly committed to property rights, you're, you're committed to information symmetry and to full disclosure that allows people un- to understand who you are as a counterparty. And I saw so many people in, in intermediaries in this sector not disclosing their risks. And that is one of the things that the regulators are going to be coming after this industry for. And, and that is one of the benefits. And if we had done this ourselves as an industry, we, the royal we, then, then I think we would have had a, a lot fewer problems and there would have been many fewer people hurt. But all that said, I sat with big losses on my Bitcoin. I got goxed. I had a hard lesson to learn about not your keys, not your coins. And I learned it. And I sat for losses on, with losses on my Bitcoin for a couple of years there, two, two bear markets ago. But I'm still here. I didn't panic. I didn't sell out. In fact, actually, I, as I saw how resilient Bitcoin was, I ended up buying more. At one point, most of my Bitcoin was in Gox. Of course, that's gone. And will we ever get it back? Yeah, probably, but you know, a fraction of what it was. But boy, was that the cheapest tuition I ever paid. And I look at it as that. And, and I would encourage everyone who is sitting with losses on your Bitcoin right now, especially if you just came into it in this four-year cycle and, and you're licking wounds right now, go use the opportunity to educate yourself. That's exactly what I did. And there's no substitution for educating yourself. I would start with your book, Safening the Bitcoin Standard. It's the one that I recommend to everybody. Go read that. You'll understand how Bitcoin works at a level that you don't need to be a technologist to understand it. And then go start rolling up sleeves and and learning it yourself. I I just uh, retweeted a tweet. I saw you retweeted this morning from Jameson Lopp. Don't ask me how to buy Bitcoin. If you have to ask me how to buy Bitcoin, then you're not ready yet because you have to be able to, uh, to, to learn how to safe keep it. Don't dig in just yet and buy it assuming that you're going to, you know, win win the gamble. Go educate yourself first. That's the best investment you can make. Yes, no, I agree with you. I will slightly disagree with you on one thing that kind of irks me is this royal we. I don't believe there is a we. (laughs) So there are individuals and they're all responsible for their actions. I personally sleep very comfortably knowing that at any point in time, anybody ever asked me about any of those things, I always said, don't put your Bitcoin in a place that is going to give you yield. I've always told people, you know, getting yield on your Bitcoin is the cheese in the mousetrap. If you think the cheese in the mousetrap is free, you're just going to give Bitcoin. Yeah, you're just going to give Bitcoin to somebody and they're going to keep it safe for you, but also offer you a return on it. That's a mousetrap. So stay away from mousetraps. I'm, I'm very happy that a few years ago, I was in Hong Kong at Token 2049 conference and I was on a panel with Mashinsky, CEO of Celsius. And I just said, this is absurd. There's no way that you can give 7% uh, without taking massive risks and there's no way that this can work. 
So I think I believe in individualism. I think people are responsible. And I think it's it, the dangerous thing about this kind of rhetoric of we is that it sometimes it's, it's, it's the people who are themselves guilty of those things who want to try and rope everybody else into it. So, you know, it's usually it's usually the shitcoiners who have promoted these kind of products who will go around saying, oh, we should have done a better job. Yeah, no, you yeah. should have done a better no, job. No, you should have. Yeah. You, yeah, you like, had the ability to disclose all of these things voluntarily. Why didn't yeah, you? And, yeah. You know, uh, we, we got a lot of slings and arrows and we got called toxic and we got called, you know, anti-business and anti-capitalist and anti-free market and anti-entrepreneurship because we are knocking down people who are trying their best to build sustainable business models. But a lot of people said that this was risk-free. A lot of people said Luna was a risk-free thing. Uh, you know, a lot of very prominent people in the space said Luna is risk-free. A lot of people said, uh, yeah, you should get, uh, try and go and get healed on your Bitcoin, because that, that's a great way to make your Bitcoin work for you rather than it sitting there. And I think um, I'm, I'm glad that I get to, um, I, I think no, no matter, no, no amount of money for me would be worth um, the, the fear that, and the guilty conscience that I would have today if I told people to go and speculate on these uh, broken things. I, th- that's why, you know, my only advice is buy Bitcoin only for the long term and the, what you're willing to sit on and don't speculate on it. Well, and some of the intermediaries are still operating that are using that same business model. It's just that, it, it, to put it in financial terms, um, if you're if you leverage yourself, what you're really doing is by is selling. Sorry, selling a call option. Okay, and so you, you, the call option for some of the players was closer to at the money than it was for. Others, okay. So there are leveraged players in this industry that had a deeper out of the money call option, short call option that they had sold and that they have not yet hit the wall, but that doesn't mean that they won't. And at some point, again, the apex predator of Bitcoin, there's going to be a swoon in the market that's going to take all of them out. So all of the players that are operating on this information asymmetry and trying to either get you to put your Bitcoin with them so that they can roll the dice and heads I win, tails you lose. Or also those that are playing in the leveraged futures markets. There is no such thing as an unleveraged futures market, right? And so a lot of the business models of the futures players was to stop their customers out and take their Bitcoin at a small enough level that they would just keep coming back. And it was so funny how, do you remember how there were players, and there still are a couple, but most of the big players used to offer 100 times or 125 times levered Bitcoin futures, Bitcoin collateralized futures contracts. Uh, This is offshore stuff, not, not, it wouldn't ever be allowed onshore in the U.S., And then all of a sudden they said, no, those contracts are too leveraged. We're only going to cap the leverage now at 20x. Okay, onshore in the U.S., you you can go two and a half x. So that kind of gives you a sense for what the regulators think is appropriate leverage that, you know, the legitimate, like the miners who want to hedge Bitcoin, let's, they can go up to two and a half x, right? Now you can still go up to 20x offshore, but at one point it was 100 or 125x for some of the big players. It still is for some of the small players. What is that business model? That is a business model that would make the Vegas bookies of the 1950s blush. Why? Because the house always wins. Okay. And so the, the goal, I think, of those business models is how much of your Bitcoin can I get you to pledge to me so I can close you out because the house always wins. And then these huge fortunes get built and, the, and that's celebrated. 
in this industry because huge fortunes get built. Well, huge fortunes got built based on what? Based on information asymmetry. Okay. And so now this gets back to my, my, there's, and this is where I know a lot of, I, even a lot of maxis and I will disagree. A big part of the commitment to property rights is the commitment to information symmetry. It's not a commitment to just freewheeling anything goes businesses where there's a lot of information asymmetry, where if they disclose that the, ho- that the odds that the house would win on those highly leveraged futures contracts was greater than 99%. And then they, 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 they you know, in the first swoon, guess what? They stopped out so many of their customers, they permanently lost them. And then they realized, oh, maybe we shouldn't be offering leverage that's that high. We'll cap our leverage at 20x because they want to just keep getting you to give them their Bitcoin, give, give them your Bitcoin when they stop you out on these levered bets. Just it's a siren song. Just stay away from it. Don't go there. And it's exactly what, what you're saying. It's just phrasing it in a different way. But, but to flip the script a little bit, there is a way I think that people can safely maybe not yet, but safely earn some sort of a cash on cash return on their Bitcoin. And that is locking their Bitcoin in lightning channels. Now there's protocol risk. Okay. It's not leveraged counterparty risk like it is with intermediaries. It's protocol risk. And I'm, it's not clear to me that, that lightning is yet ready to rely on as a protocol, we still have more work to do here. We, the, we, the royal we in a, in a good sense, have more work to do in the industry to get that tech, you know, just seasoned with time, get the bugs out of it and scaled. But I do believe that what will end up happening is these, these banks that provide custody services for Bitcoin will end up offering instead of leveraged-based yield products or futures-backed crazy leverage speculation that, that force the counterparty risk question onto the table. They will start offering ways for those that have Bitcoin that want to put them into payment channels to, to anchor the, the Lightning Network. That's a paradigm shift because now you can get a cash-on-cash return without uh, having a, w- without taking the counterparty risk that it was unfortunately so clear was massively mispriced in this industry. And these, you know, even 80% yields that were being offered by some of the scammers in this industry didn't remotely come close to compensating you for the counterparty risk. Let's take that counterparty risk issue off the table and start talking about other ways. If people really are desperate to earn a cash on cash return, you can, you can do it through the Lightning Network, but you will be taking protocol risk. Yeah, and, and putting the money in the Lightning Network, in my mind, if you wanted to draw a meat space analogy, is similar to investing in a company like Western Union. You're putting the coins to work in routing payments, and you don't have access to them at that point. You know, you can't use them yourself to spend. You can't spend them, so you have to forsake them. They get, you know, they get worked. They're they're, they're moving around from channel to channel in order to facilitate payments, and they're earning transaction fees. So it's similar to basically investing in something like Western Union. I think it's, um, you know, Nick Batia, whom we've also hosted here, said, I think it's a really, really powerful idea that he thinks of it as the the lightning rate as being the equivalent of the um, risk-free rate. The risk-free yeah. rate, because that's yep. that's the basic thing that you could do. I mean, you're right; it does have risk at this point, and you know, I I, I still wouldn't be comfortable saying Lightning itself is risk-free. It still needs some time, but I think potentially this is a very very powerful concept. 
Yeah, I fully agree. And, and some of the smartest people in the world <laughs> are working on it. Some of the smartest Bitcoiners are working on it. That tells you something, right? Because, you know, Bitcoin itself is, is pretty stable. It, it's possible that there's, that somebody finds a zero day exploit, but the Lindy effect is pretty strong. Every day that goes by exponentially, that probability goes down. It never reaches zero, but, but, you know, some of the smartest Bitcoin engineers are now lightning engineers and that's no accident. Yes. And also, of course, you know, while people who, who think this is a ma- massive gotcha that, you know, the risk never goes to zero. Well, you know, the, the risk is also not up against an idealized uh, zero because you're up against all the other risks that exist in all the other alternative systems. And which brings us nicely to the next thing that we wanted to talk about with all of the fireworks going on in the uh, fiat <laughs> Macro. system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the real <laughs> zero risk risk-free financial system, yeah. you know, the government bonds that have always been the bedrock of the financial system. So it's been a, it's been a crazy couple of weeks here. Um, <laughs> today, it's September 27th. And uh, we've, over the last few days, we've seen bonds, well, the last few weeks, or I'd say even the whole year, we've seen bonds get battered. So people who have saved in bonds, and I think most people don't even realize this and the financial media is kind of mum about it and they're even doing the kind of, oh, this is a great time to be buying the dip. But I think for people who have been saving in bonds for the last few years or for the last few decades, uh, the last couple of weeks have been uh, absolutely brutal. brutal. Yields yeah. have been going up and so the value of the pre-existing bonds has crashed. And so you know, your average saver has lost something like maybe 20, 30, 40, 50% over the last month. This is what is referred to as the risk-free thing. You know, you just give money to the government. You could, what, what could go wrong? They can always print money if uh, push comes to shove. But we're seeing a lot of things going wrong. What are your thoughts on the global macro situation? Well, this was frankly inevitable at some point, right? That the fiat system would be tested. And I do believe it is being tested. Is it the terminal test? One of my mentors, actually the one who told me about your book way back when, um, thinks this is it. And I, I'm not so sure. Again, if I thought it were, then I wouldn't be spending my time working on a, a, on a US dollar bank. But I acknowledge that it's fundamentally an unstable system because it's built on debt. Ultimately, the interest coverage can and will eat a lot of the issuers debt that issued debt in the reserve currency, which is dollars. And we're seeing a lot of forced selling of other countries. I've got to imagine in the crazy, you know, multi-standard deviation moves we've seen in the US treasury market in the last few days that we saw a lot of forced selling because Countries are, are, are liquidating from their reserve portfolio, U.S. treasuries, right at the same time as the Fed is implementing QT, quantitative tightening. And so who's the buyer? This is the reason why the price is collapsing and the yield is going up. What I've seen having studied this for 15 years and looked at all the different ways of analyzing macroeconomics is, is that ultimately... It's not what we learned in school, right? It's not as simple as as we talked about earlier in this just in this podcast. M zero gets multiplied into M two. That's not the way that credit is created. Credit is created in the in the in the securities industry through the repo and other pledge collateral markets. And when you start to see collateral get hoarded, which is what we're seeing now, 
then you start to have a major credit correction. And what the bond market is telling us, there's a nasty recession coming if we're not already in it. Ultimately, we're going to be easing. The bond market is saying central banks are going to be back to easing again at some point um, relatively soon. We shall see. I wouldn't want to have to be in their jobs right now. It's a very unstable environment. And it just goes to show you that these highly leveraged, tightly coiled systems were were just never stable to begin with. And that's one of the reasons why I lament the leverage that came into Bitcoin itself, because that, that made it less stable than it should have been. Yeah, we've had 51 years of people saying, this is it, it's going to collapse, <laughs> this is done. And frankly, it's miraculous that it survived so far. Yeah. In, in, in the fiat standard, I try and look at it from the perspective of what's the steel man case for why this thing works. And I think I put together what I believe is like the, 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 the best explanation for why this thing works. Primarily, it's the fact that because of the way that the business cycle works, and as explained by the Austrians, which is, you know, people might not want to admit that they're Austrian, but pretty much everybody in financial markets accepts the Austrian story when they accept that Fed easing creates booms and then Fed tightening creates bubbles and then creates recessions and then the yield curve inverts and you get the recession. That's the Austrian story. The only people who disagree with it are basically um, academics who don't have to work in the market and effectively media that has to say it's wrong so that people don't read, but everybody understands it. Everybody works with it. And uh, within this uh, context, the fact that we get these business cycles, that we get these recessions, is what creates a mass deleveraging and liquidation, yep. which prevents the money supply from increasing. So I ran the numbers on the money supply for fiat currencies all over the world from 1960 until 2020. So 60 years of data for all the world's currencies. Broad money supply went up on average. The, the simple average for all the currencies was about 30%. But that, of course, includes, you know, all the crazy numbers. But if you did a weighted average where you weighed currencies by their value so that, you know, you don't count the Venezuelan Bolivar as much as the dollar, um, the Venezuelan Bolivar would be less than a thousandth of the dollar in its weight, you get an average of around 14%. So this is the track record that we've had with fiat currencies. It's about 14% per year. Yeah. Still way yeah. too high. It means you mm-hmm. lose half of the value stored in your money in mm-hmm. five years, basically. Yep. And that's, you know, that's the overall average. If you looked at the uh, best currencies, the dollar, the Swiss franc, uh, Swedish, Danish currencies, you know, the the euro, the yen, it's around seven, eight percent or so per year, which is still still double the population growth rate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you're losing about half of your money in about 10 years at that rate. But the reason it's only 7% is because, you know, it's not because they're doing 7% on the dot every year. It's because they do 8, 10, 12, 15, and then negative 10. And then that negative 10 is kind of the glue that holds the thing together. Because if we didn't have that negative 10, if we didn't have that liquidation, we'd just be doing 10, 15, 20 and then things would be much, much, much worse. I think what's perhaps different right now is it seemed, well, at least when I wrote the book, was that with the introduction of central bank digital currencies and so on, it looks like we're going to be getting rid of that kind of liquidation because, yeah, because like the way that I discuss it in, in the fiat system, the way that money's created, what I call fiat mining, is done through lending. You know, there, there's no 
printer that's out there making the money. It's not physical money. It's digital money. Coming through the commercial banks. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. It's done through the commercial banks. But if you move towards something like central bank digital currencies, which is effectively what we saw, uh, you know, it's not formally a central bank digital currency, but that's what UBI is. That's what all these handouts are. That's what the uh, coronavirus checks were all about. It's, it's, It's when you go from that kind of uh, money that's generated by banks to money that's handed out by government to people. Well, that money has no corrective mechanism. It just produces inflation and then it doesn't produce the boom and bust cycle that leads to liquidations that corrects it. You know, of course, here I'm not trying to say that these liquidations and the bankruptcies are a good thing. Obviously, they're a bad thing and you shouldn't be doing them in the first place. But you can't ignore the fact that because a lot of people's lives get ruined, <laughs> a lot of businesses get liquidated. That kind of saves the currency because it reduces a lot of the money that's outstanding and it uses a lot of the, if to think about it from the Keynesian perspective, reduces the aggregate demand. You know, well, when a lot of people are unemployed and homeless, they're spending a lot less. And so that brings the price of other things down and raises the price of the currency. Are we shifting toward a world now where we're just going to start seeing more and more inflation? I think the last year, I would admit, I'm surprised by the extent of the uh, tightening that the Federal Reserve did. I thought, uh, you know, they know where their bread is buttered and the bread is buttered in the interest of the large banks and financial institutions, and they want low interest rates, and so they're going to keep getting them. Um, I'm surprised at how far they've gone with the tightening. I wonder how far they can go. Maybe because of all of the damage that's being done in in the bond market globally, and because of the damage that's being done to all the international currencies, there's no way around it but for the U.S. Federal Reserve to start printing money and handing it out to the rest of the world. What do you think? Well, boy, I don't know. You, me- you, mentioned, you mentioned the Plaza Accord, and I think yeah. that's, that's very astute. You, you recently tweeted about the Plaza Accord. And I think this, yeah. is, this is exactly where we are. This is like is. the days of the Plaza Accord because that's what happened then. After the Volcker came in, they tightened. We had all the world's currencies begin to basically collapse, and then the U.S. dollar had to just engage in printing money and handing it out to all of these central banks. So that right. And the Plaza Accord was 1985. What happened two years later? We had the 87 stock market crash in the US. Also, you actually had the Japan bubble and then crash, right? That was all related because back then the yen and the dollar were the, dom- the two dominant currencies in the world. Not so much anymore. Yes, it was. There, there's a great phrase. I think it was, was it Hoover who said uh, essentially that, the, that monetary policy was like a cannon being tossed around the the bridge of a ship in a tempest toss era. The capital flows, you know, we just keep literally just boomeranging back and forth. And I didn't get that quote correctly, but it's but you get the gist that that's exactly what starts to happen. And so we've come through a period of of real stability and now we're in the tempest toss era where the cannon is, you know, is is just boomeranging around from bridge of a ship in a in a tempest toss era and and that's capital flows. And so massive capital flows are coming into the US right now because of the perception that the dollar is going to be strengthening and that was that's that's the safe that's the safe haven. Now you got to get into some of the plumbing though, which is that the euro dollar market, which is dollars that are issued offshore, that's naturally a short on the US dollar. So part of the reason why the dollar is spiking as it is right now is there's a giant short covering rally. 
And so um, the, the, the Adam Ferguson book, When Money Dies, I think is a fantastic book. It's a period piece written by a historian, so not an economist, which I think is a good thing, um, because it tells the real story of what happened in, in the Weimar collapse. And what you learn is the just incredible head fakes that the market can send, right? And so a lot of folks would look at what the U.S. has done, especially in recent years, and, and say, well, the dollar's got to collapse, right? Because we've printed so much money. And then the head fake is, no, the dollar's rallying like crazy against everything right now. What is that? It's a short covering rally. And this is one of the things that starts to happen when you start to get you know, real instability. And that crazy thing about the, the Weimar story is that towards the end, you saw 50% intraday moves between the, the German currency and the French currency or the German currency and gold or the German currency and stock markets back then in, in Weimar Germany. 50% intraday moves. So the amplitude of the move starts to increase as you get further and further towards the, the end, the natural end of, of the currency system before you move to something new and more stable. And I think we're, I think we're, we've been in that for, for a while. The amplitude of the of the crises continues to increase. But that whole period of 1985 to 1989 is an important period to study. A lot of people are thinking that the US stock market is going to correct here. And in fact, actually, it's been surprisingly resilient in the face of what's happened because the bond market correction, to your point, has been a lot more extreme. And go back and look at 1985. It took a couple of years before the stock market crashed right after the Plaza Accord. But it was absolutely connected. So the pain trade, and I've seen references to this, the pain trade is a big rally in US stocks. I'm not predicting anything here because I don't trade. I really don't pay that much attention to the day-to-day, including on Bitcoin. I'm more interested in building something long-term and durable, but I get that a lot of people do trade and, and they're looking at all this. And my suggestion is go back and look at the Plaza Accord because to your point, when Volcker raised rates as much as he did, it made the dollar too strong. It killed a lot of the export industries in the US and there was an agreement to devalue the dollar and it happened really fast. And boy, did that usher in a lot of instability in financial markets in the ensuing five years. And I think that's going to happen here again. Yeah. And of course, it also ushered in Greenspan's essentially monetary crack habit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, he came in after Volcker. And I mean, when, when he first came in, obviously, a lot of people thought of him as the kind of hard money fanatic who's going to harden things. But, yeah. you know, once you I'm get ran. into that job, yeah, it's yeah. apparently. She was at his swearing in ceremony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. She was. Oh, yes. Go look at the pictures. Ayn Rand was standing next to him when he was sworn in in his first stint at, as a, at the Fed. Yeah. This is this has always been. I, I must say, I know a lot of my listeners really like Ayn Rand, and I, I I must admit I've never read her work. But the kind of problem that I've always had with objectivists, as opposed to more Austrian school economists, is that their analysis of the free market somehow excludes the U.S. dollar. And I think I once saw someone use, you know, one of these objectivist libertarians was using the dollar as a symbol of freedom. And for me, I think this is this is exactly the problem in that. The analysis of free markets for many of those people stops at the uh, central bank where they just assume, you know, the government needs to be uh, in charge of the money. The government can't uh, dictate the minimum wage and the price of potatoes, but sure, they can handle the price of capital and money. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that what, what, 
what, what happened with Greenspan is, you know, once he got into power and the temptation to ease after the 1987 crash, that kicked off basically the habit. So the, there was the early bubble in the 90s and then there was the expansion for the Clinton re-election. And that was, uh, you know, this was pretty controversial back then that the Clinton uh, White House lent on Greenspan to do expansionary monetary policy in time for the election. And that went well. And then that then led to an even bigger bubble in the 90s, which led to the dot-com, which then they fixed with an even more expansionary monetary policy, which led to the housing bubble in 2008, 2009, and then the global sovereign debt crisis that followed. And all of that has been, uh, you know, uh, in, in typical Austrian fashion or in typical in the way that Austrian would describe it, it's just um, kicking the can down the road and doubling down, you know, all right, you got wrecked on your trade, just, you know, move coins out of your... <laughs> cold storage to the exchange and double down and surely you're correct. And it kind of has been working for a few years, but then you get an even bigger bubble. And so 2000 and dot-com bubble, and then you had the 2008 housing bubble. And now we have the everything bubble. The sovereign everything debt. Is in a bubble. Yeah. Well, sovereign that's, a, that's a what's at the core of the system. Right. Yeah. The everything bubble. Agreed. Yeah. You know, again, not, not asking for sort of short-term predictions, but mm -hmm. Can they really escape easing again? Because, I mean, we keep saying they're backed into a corner. The phrase the Fed's backed into a corner has been used a lot. And it is a corner because on the one hand, if they tighten, then you're going to get enormous liquidity problems and enormous solvency problems. And you're going to continue to get bonds wiped out. And you're going to get a lot of people lose their life savings. Then again, if they loosen, they're going to continue to get more inflation and same problem in terms of people losing their life savings, not uh, that their bonds are getting wrecked, but that the value of the bonds in real terms is getting wrecked. And do you, I mean, obviously you and I agree that the best way to solve this problem would be to not to be here in the first place, not <laughs> right. to do the things that <laughs> not got to have gotten you here. here. Exactly. exactly. Yes, the, yeah. the old saying, you know, I wouldn't yeah. start where you are, but now that they're here, I don't know, do you have any kind of advice for any uh, central bankers listening? <laughs> Well, and there may be some listening to me, but uh, given, given the situation here that I'm in with uh, with my company, but first of all, I would say I would underscore what you said that that we should never have gotten here. But the fact that we are now, what? And I I, I would go back to had a profound thought, which is that once you've had the inflation, you don't want the deflation to turn around and try to fix it. And so here's where I think there's a huge difference between Keynesians of all stripes slash MMTers versus the Mises way of thinking. It, it, and he, he, what he was observing was the return at a deflationary price to gold by the UK after World War I, which ultimately tipped off the depression in um, 1920 in the world because it was a deflationary decision to go back to the pre-war sterling to gold price. And they had inflated so much to pay for the war during the 1914 to 1918 years. Uh, and by choosing the deflationary strategy, they went back, they created, created the depression of 1920. Mises had, I, I think he was absolutely right in this, once you've created the inflation, don't try to take it back. Because if you do, you're, you will create a, 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 a deep recession at best. He didn't say it that way, but that was essentially what he was getting at. So the best strategy 
is not to try to take it back. The best strategy is to forego ever making it worse in the future. So that would, that would be where I, where I would fall out. Um, however, it's one of the challenges is that everybody else in the world, it's not a zero-sum game. Everybody else, in, well, actually probably is a zero-sum game. I'd be interested in your perspective on this, Savitine, that because, because everybody's central banks are basically playing the same game now, you haven't seen very many countries. A couple of emerging market countries are breaking ranks, but that's it. Most of them are, are playing with the same playbook that, that, that if, if the U.S. were to say, all right, I'm not going to try to quantitatively tighten, but I'm going to forego quantitative easing in the future, and I'm just going to freeze things where they are now, what would the rest of the world do? It's a game theory analysis at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the rest of the world's central banks are in a massive, massive problem. I mean, Britain over the last week is looking like um, essentially, you know, your average Latin American 1980s basket case. Um, The currency is crashing against the dollar and the yields of the bonds are going up. And Well, look at the debt service coverage ratio of these countries. The developing world looks very much like, sorry, the developed world looks very much like the developing world at their governments from a cash flow perspective right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like a lot of the, a lot of the developing world might uh, be doing better because they've learned <laughs> right. the lesson the hard way, whereas, uh, um, you know, the, the only, uh, <laughs> I find it absolutely fascinating, like the, in Britain in particular, there's zero, zero within the financial media, there's zero kind of introspection about, you know, what could have gotten us here? What might we have done over the last century of insane inflation that might have brought us to this point? Nope. It's all being blamed on the new prime minister and her a treasury uh, chancellor whose budget, you know, oh no, they're going to lower taxes. Clearly that's what's going to drop it. And it's, it's, it's insane. It's like, you know, the, the, obviously I, I don't believe these people are in any way significant enough to affect the course of this. You know, it's, 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 it's a hundred year train that's been running for a hundred years. These guys just came in charge in the last 15 minutes. They're not going to alter the course in any significant way. But there's very, very little awareness of the kind of long-term structural problems. And I think at this point, like, what are the options for the British government other than just basically begging the Fed for a bailout effectively? That there's no other way around it, right? Because if they try and boost their bonds that's going to destroy their currency. If they um, destroy their bonds, that's going to destroy the savings of their people. They, they have no alternative but to, they need dollars. They need a lot of dollars from the Fed. Well, and it's the, it's the old phrase that the US Treasury Secretary said in 1971, the dollar is our currency, but your problem. One of the interesting things to point out when, when people are repeating that phrase, though, in 1971, it was the US trying to devalue. Here, the U.S. is trying to increase the value of the dollar. It's the exact opposite. So it's still, the the phrase is still accurate. It's the dollar's our currency, but your problem. It's just that it's the reverse problem. So, you know, you got to, you got to dig in and, and, you know, understand again, history rhymes. It doesn't necessarily exactly repeat, but you're absolutely right. And in the U.S. case, the last U.S. president that reduced U.S. government debt was Clinton. So if you look at the U.S. debt, government debt numbers, you really can't tell who was a Republican versus who was a Democrat. There, there's no distinction. And to your point, really nobody in the world is talking about the structural issues here. And debt service coverage is ultimately what, what I think triggers 
any bankruptcy, whether it be an entity, whether it be an individual, or whether it be a country. And when these debt service coverage ratios start to just explode because the interest on servicing the debt just explodes, especially those that issue debt in US dollar terms and now have a giant short position on. And there will be defaults, I think, um, at, at some point. But but how this all plays out, I'm lucky I don't have to uh, make those forecasts and, and not in that business because I think it's very, very difficult to do. One thing I will say about Bitcoin, because I know that's, that's the audience that will be largely listening to this podcast, is that there's been a lot of discussion that Bitcoin is not the insurance policy against financial instability. And it certainly hasn't traded as that in the last 18 months. And the reason is because it got financialized by these leveraged financializers that we were talking about earlier. So it, it started to have a very, very high correlation with tech stocks, especially with risky assets. And it still does. But we've seen in the last week that that pattern has broken. And Bitcoin has actually gone up um, it, while everything else is melting down. And so I, I, I've always thought that, look, I mean, just if you understand what Bitcoin is, it's pretty obvious that it's going to have no correlation with the fiat system at the moment at which it's going to matter the most. And in the short term, is it, will it have correlation with the fiat system? Yep, because you've got the Wall Street hedge funds coming in to trade it like their latest liquidity plaything and leverage it and uh, and and playing games, okay? And in the secondary market, that does make it look like it's not an inflation hedge, but that doesn't mean that it won't be at the moment in time when it matters most. And I think the same is true for gold. It's fascinating that gold has traded so poorly. Same thing with silver. Silver's all the way back down to 18 and a quarter this morning. Um, it's amazing how how much those perceived inflation hedge assets have underperformed. And a lot of it is because they got so financialized that they have high correlation with financial assets. Yeah, I mean, my, my view on this is, yeah, if you look at it in the short term, then yeah, the, the you know, the, when the um, when the Dow Jones and the S&P spike up, I mean, everything is one trade, right? In the short term, everything is one trade. If Powell's in a good mood, everything's green. If Powell's in a bad mood, everything is red. And Bitcoin is part of that. But again, people miss the bigger picture, which is you need to zoom out. Yes, in the day-to-day -day trading, it does react in that way. But in the long-term trading, it is very different. And in fact, one very interesting thing uh, Nick uh, Batia shared the other day is, you know, somebody from Wall Street, uh, from TradFi, was posting a chart showing just the depth of correlation between, can't remember what exactly it was, Bitcoin and something, some other thing on the chart. And Nick noticed that, you know, in order to make the two lines fit so well together, they put the fiat asset, I forget what it was, on the normal scale and the Bitcoin was on a log scale. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Which, yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, it, it, it makes for a very nice chart, yeah. but it misses the point that there's a, like another 10x improvement in Bitcoin or maybe 20x, I can't remember what it is, wherein, you know, if you miss that, like, yeah, if you started off with Bitcoin, sure, you know, you were up and down on the same days in the same way, but, you know, not all ups and all downs are identical. You add up all the ups and downs with the fiat asset or the ups and downs with the Bitcoin asset, and then you end up 10x ahead. <laughs> and that's the thing that people miss, which is for me, you know, it's uh, like the really silly thing about it is the people who are saying Bitcoin failed as an inflation hedge are the same idiots who spent the last three years telling us there is no inflation. In particular, you know, one of my favorite idiots, Nassim Taleb, he specifically spent sp the last three years saying that all of the insane corona hysteria nonsense is not going to cause inflation. And then when the CPI turns in at 
you know, he looks at the chart the day after the CPI and he says, oh, look, Bitcoin crashed after the CPI and it's failed. And this is ridiculous. It's like trying to buy insurance for your house after the house burns down. You want to buy your insurance before that. So in the long run, I think the case is still there because it's, um, uh, and I think that the really powerful thing is that, well, it's, it's not like Bitcoin's been destroyed by end of easy money. It's not like Bitcoin's been destroyed by the inflation. It's doing what it has always done. We've always had 60 and 70 and 80% drawdowns. And drawdowns, fact, yeah. We've yeah. always had this four cycle and it's gone exactly according to schedule. And in fact, you know, like if you just ignored all the news over the last three years and not paid any attention to any of the political fiat things that are happening, all of the coronavirus stuff, all of the monetary policy, and just looked at the Bitcoin market only, you know, if you were in, in, in Satoshi's cave and you didn't even look <laughs> at, any of the, at any of the fiat world, Bitcoin's done what it's always done. It did a 10x after the halving, and then it did a big 75% drawdown. Usually it did a little bit more in terms of its upside. You know, the, the previous two halvings caused a bigger up, uh, a, a bigger rise up and a larger drawdown. So the first drawdown was, I think, more than 90%. The second one was more than 80%. This one so far has been only uh, 70, 75% or so. So, it seems to be going according to that pattern. You know, with each having, we get a, and, and, and it makes sense because you'd get a smaller bump because when you go from 20% inflation to 10% supply inflation, it's a bigger shock than going from 4% to 2%. So it would make sense that the jump would be a little bit smaller. But overall, we've seen nothing to suggest that this is out of the ordinary for Bitcoin. The day-to-day -day movements, the day-to-day -day fluctuations are surely there. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we still end up being far ahead of all the other alternative assets. And I think for me, again, the, you know, the, don't follow the Nassim Taleb model of wait until the Fed tells you that the dollar has been destroyed and then go buy Bitcoin and expect it to go up the next day. And that's how you buy an inflation hedge. Yeah, for me, for, for me, the idea is even, even, you know, even up until this point, the advantage is that if you spent the last five years just stacking Bitcoin and not looking at the price, you are far better off than people who spent the last five years reading the tea leaves of every single Jay Powell statement and trying to figure out all the macro things. Think about how much time you would have spent on all of those things. Think about the stress that goes into all of those things to try and figure out how this fiat thing works, to try and understand how all of these things play out and then be able to make the right trade every single day. You know, you come in, all right, today we sell the Dow and we buy the bonds and today we short the pound and the long the yen or whatever it is to try and make all of these days. And of course, all of these, you know, everybody in fiat world only talks about their winning trades. They're all geniuses. They only uh, make those winning trades. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> between you and yourself, nobody cares about your performance. I know fiat people don't like to show their portfolio for very good reasons. They just have very strong opinions about what you should do with your money, which happens to benefit them. But, you know, the question you need to ask yourself, I tell people is, all of the time you spend following fiat markets, take that time and use it to do whatever it is that you do to earn money. You know, if you're a bartender, go and get extra time doing bartending. Whatever job you have, you know, if you're a dentist, take on more clients as a dentist spend that time doing your job, getting better at your job, earning money with your job, and then put that money into Bitcoin and consider then the performance of Bitcoin where you just stack sats and you hold them in cold storage and you don't pay any attention to anything going on 
in Bitcoin world or in fiat world. Because let's face it, you know, I mean, I shouldn't be saying this is this is the podcast that you know I want people to listen. But the reality is, you don't even need to listen. Like nothing has changed to my podcast or to anything. Like you need to know how to keep your coins safe. But really, what has changed in the world of Bitcoin over the last five years that requires you to do anything? I mean, you just basically not um, much. Keep, <laughs> that's yeah, the point. Just, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's the point. That's the point. That there's that, that's the thing, and that's that's the way money should be. It shouldn't be an actively managed user experience. It's just, just it should just be you know you earn your money and then you store it in the money and then that's it. So you hold your Bitcoin and you wait. And I think even at these horribly depressing prices where Bitcoiners, a lot of them are throwing in the towel and a lot of them are giving up and no, this is the, the narrative has failed. Well, the reality is you're still better off than the people who spent the last five years listening to financial media every day and trading every market every day. Because I mean, I'm sure there's some people in fiat world who have outperformed Bitcoin and a lot of, maybe more people have outperformed Bitcoin by playing the lottery. But in terms of- <laughs> right. In terms of as a reliable way to do it, you know, can you tell people, yeah, just, you know, go, go and keep listening to financial media and speculate and pick the right stocks before they go up, buy the right bonds before they go up and dump them right before they go down. That's not a very successful strategy for most people, particularly people who want to be productive in their life, who want to do something useful. For those people, I, I don't think there's anything that uh, beats Bitcoin, even and at the depth of this. So um, ignore the day-to-day -day noise and Stand out long term. We haven't seen anything in this uh, latest crash that is in any way different. 2022 is just 2018 replayed. That's this is what 2018 was like. Yeah, and 2014. Well, one important point that I just thought about as you were laying that out is so true. We talked earlier about the amplitude of crises in fiat increasing as you get towards the end of fiat systems. The amplitude of the corrections in Bitcoin is decreasing because the inflation rate cut, to your point, is less meaningful now, right? F to go from 8% to 4% was a bigger cut in inflation rate than to go from 4% to 2%. And so the amplitude of the swings is going down. But that said, I, there is one thing I disagree with. There is something different in this bull market, the, the one we just came through, the 2018 to 2022 four-year cycle. And that was all the leverage that was in the sector this time around. It did clip the top of the price performance, and it and it also caused us to pierce the low on the downside. Up until recent, up until June, we had had a series of higher highs and higher lows in Bitcoin, and we actually had a lower low for the first time in eight years. Uh, really, for I think maybe even for, for the first time ever in Bitcoin, because we pierced the prior cycle high, got pierced on the low side here for the first time. What happened that caused that? That's all the financialization. It, it clipped the top off the top, and it and it increased the amplitude of the bottom. And that is the asymmetry that happens in financialization. That's what I lament. I don't think the stock to flow model is dead. I have, I've always thought that was a helpful way to think about it because Bitcoin is a commodity, and all commodities get valued on the basis of stock to flow, period. It's very obvious. And so I know there's a big debate among the maxis about the stock to flow model. I've never thought that that was an invalid model. What it shows, it's kind of like efficient markets hypothesis. If, if all of the prerequisites for the efficient markets hypothesis are in place, it absolutely works. Why didn't it work in practice? Because the prerequisites weren't there. And the same is true for stock to flow. We, 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 we had 
we had paper Bitcoin that influenced the price of sec- the secondary market price of Bitcoin in this most recent market because it's obvious. It's now obvious. No one should debate whether there was paper Bitcoin. You saw how many bankruptcies of Bitcoin lenders there were, right? We had paper Bitcoin. I don't know how big it was relative to the the 19.2 million Bitcoins that are outstanding, but it was pretty big. And a lot of people, but, because they didn't understand the difference, um, kept their Bitcoin in paper Bitcoin and 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 then got wrecked. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. But I think we also had that in the previous cycles. I mean, it wasn't as big because Bitcoin wasn't as big, but I mean, a lot of people got wrecked. A lot of small exchanges had always been getting I got liquidated. Goxed. In 20, what was it, 2013? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2013. So we'd always had those things. We'd always had these things. I think, yeah, perhaps like the, I I think the macro and all these leverage arguably, you know, and and I think another major important part was the China ban on mining. You know, when you destroy the miners who are the, basically the biggest Bitcoin bulls, and then they force them to have to sell a big part of their stash in order to relocate, that's going to hurt the price. So I think that's what clipped the top. And I think probably what you mentioned did lower the bottom, but still, well, you know, this is this it's a is, powerful cycle. Yeah, yeah, it's still the cycle that we we'd always expected, which is, you know, you get the having, you get a big jump for another about twelve eighteen months, and then you get a crash for another twelve eighteen months. Remember, Preston, I think, was the uh, one who formulated as eighteen months bull market, eighteen months bear market, eighteen month consolidation. Every step along the way, people jump and say, all right, look, you know, it moved a little bit too much in this direction over the last week. Clearly, that thing has been invalidated. But we might not be able to, as Hayek said, you know, uh, the problem in economics is that you can't make quantitative predictions. You can make pattern predictions. Yes. And this is what the case. So it's difficult to pick the top and pick the bottom, but the pattern is still there. I think that still holds. Agreed. And yeah, and, uh, until the pattern changes, and that's why you shouldn't the pattern be trading. won't change. It, completely agree. And, 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 that, and the pattern won't change in Bitcoin fundamentally because the stock to flow does drive the value of any commodity and Bitcoin's a commodity. And it's, it, we're about to have the, as you like to point out, the asset with the lowest flow relative to stock that's used as money in human history. <laughs> that's coming in the next havoc. And here we yeah. go. Let's, let's, you know, let's bring it on. And in the meantime, uh, those of us who've been around a long time, seen this before, we're just hunkered down building and, you know, getting the, getting what I think that this next cycle is the, the critical infrastructure is the layering infrastructure that will enable the, the low value payments to go through on the, the layer two protocols that are anchored to Bitcoin as the base layer. And that's just a deepening of infrastructure. And that's probably the play from an infrastructure perspective in, in, the, in the next having is that we actually, Bitcoin itself becomes a high value transfer network. If you're going to use base layer Bitcoin, it's, you're really only using it for, for high value payments. Smaller payments are going through lightning channels. And I think we'll see whether Custodia's Abbott on Liquid is also permitted to do what I think it can do. But we have to get yeah. permission, of course, for that. Yeah. Wishing you the best of luck. Well, one more thing I want to add. When we were mentioning the Plaza Accord, I think there's a very big difference. The, the one thing that I think didn't point out is that in 1980, the U.S., number one, had a lot less debt and, and a lot less domestic inflation in terms of rising prices. In other words, the dollar was not just strengthening against the yen and the pound and the, the foreign currencies. It was also after you know the early 80s, prices weren't rising. 
oil prices were low in the 1980s. Um, commodities were generally low. Price rises were very much under control by the mid-1980s. Not under control in a gold standard way, obviously, but it was a lot less bad than in the 1970s. Today, I think I don't think it's quite as bad as the 1970s, perhaps, but it is nowhere near as good as in the mid-1980s. So that is, I think, what complicates things if we're trying to think about a plaza accord, because in the 1980s, the U.S. could have this position, all right, well, here's a whole ton of dollars for you kids. Go ahead and play, you know, fix your yen and fix your pound and fix your bond market. And, um, you know, obviously, it's also very good for the U.S. from a political perspective. I mean, this is really why the U.S. runs the world, because when there's a shortage of liquidity, everybody has to go to the U.S. and everybody has to be on good terms with the U.S. You know, this is this is the time where it pays to not have angered the U.S., because if you anger the U.S., if your president had tried to play nasty games with the U.S., then your, the, the Federal Reserve is not going to be very eager to uh, save you, which is what complicates things now, because... Now the U.S. is no longer in that position. Now the U.S. has enormous amounts of debt and there's enormous amounts of inflation. This is what really makes it a lot more complicated for me that I can't really wrap my head around how they're going to do it. One way I think that it could be done is I, I, I think, I mean, I'm surprised we haven't started hearing that stuff yet. I think it's going to be a few weeks maybe, but the same kind of people who were talking about we need a great reset after the coronavirus are going to start bringing up the same thing for a great reset in terms of currencies. And I think the, you know, the, the global potential for something like a global central bank digital reserve currency is what's going to come up. That instead of making the US dollar the global reserve currency, you can repackage all of the world's reserve currencies and the yuan, which is not really a reserve currency today, but could get into some form of position like that, and then build some kind of, going back to Keynes's idea of the band core, something like an international... SDRs, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But again, Did people have talked about that for years, right? That we need a supranational money. And of course, the, the, they want to control it. They want to be the issuer of it and become the global central bank to the world. But the US has constantly blocked that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I think perhaps... I mean, the, the Chinese yuan is also suffering, but at least China doesn't have a lot of debt. Uh, oh, boy. A lot more assets. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not, I was thinking about this very question last night. Which balance sheet is in worse shape? Because China clearly didn't have as long a period of time to put debt on its balance sheet as the U.S. did, because the U.S. has been doing it for 50 years. We had an equity financed economy until 1968. And what I mean by that is, the non-financial sector debt that was issued was equal to the savings, the cumulative savings up until that point. So all the debt was issued by savings. It was commodity debt, commodity credit in the Misesian term, not circulation credit. And then we started actually putting circulation credit on top of the US economy in 1968. So it's, China, of course, didn't really emerge until it was added to the World Trade Organization during the Clinton administration. And, but it put on as much debt as the US took 50 years to put on. China put on in, in the span of you know, 20, 25 years. It did it much faster. I'm not sure who, who's got the stronger balance sheet, to be honest. There's a lot of debt on China's balance sheet. Unfortunately, I, you know, the, I think China would have been better off not pursuing the mercantilist policies that it watched Japan successfully pursue by consistently keeping its currency undervalued and therefore winning the export business. It would have been better off not having done that. But, but here we are. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you, I, I think you're right. I mean, they do have a lot of foreign assets. They've been acquiring a lot of foreign assets all over the world. But yeah, you're right that, and and particularly domestically, I think that the, the housing bubble in China is something is astonishing. Like you see all these ghost cities getting demolished. Um, That's I mean, malinvestment, no right there. Exactly, and no amount of central planning can hide that. So, who knows? Who knows? It's it, it's it's very difficult to be able to tell what's going to happen, but. Good thing about having Bitcoin, and I think uh, for me the case remains there, is that uh, you watch this as a spectator sport rather than um, worrying so much about the future of your family and and having to make a decision based on all of those things. I think the the, the liberation that you get from having Bitcoin in that regard is just uh, it's priceless. And it's a, it's a great point. And the more those of us who've been around for a long time just hunker down and focus on helping to build out that network. And build build out the network effects. Get real adoption. Again, I'm not talking about you know trading adoption. I'm talking about real adoption. Just keep building, keep building, keep building, and that's it, it'll all fall into place. None of these things, it, 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 regardless of the opinions that each and every one of us might have, none of us can influence it. Everybody, all we can do is just it, it, these these trends are in motion. They're so much bigger than any of us. They're long-term trends. And so there's nothing that, that even the most powerful people in the world can do to stop it. They can slow it down, but they can't stop it. And so just hunker down and, and uh, you know, There's one building. thing you can do. There's one thing you can do, stack sats. It's really the only <laughs> thing you, you can do to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work immediately, but it goes in the right direction. We, we've got a question for you from Peter. Yeah, thank you, Kaylin. I have a follow-up question on what you said regarding China. Do you have an explanation for why China's consumer price inflation has been so low compared to European countries and the US? Well, a lot of the inflation that's happening in this cycle is supply-driven, right? And if you think about who's the supplier of the world, it's China. So they have not had as big a supply-side shock as the rest of the world, all the supply chain issues that the rest of the world is facing, and just transportation costs and um, bottlenecks that we've all had to deal with in the rest of the world because we're so reliant upon China, who's the manufacturer of the world. I remember in the 1980s, I remember the Plaza Accord. I was, you know, I was around back then and, and uh, starting to study all of, these, all of these things in school. And back then, Japan was the supplier to the world because it had, it had the, the, the currency that it was pursuing the mercantilist policies. And um, so it was really all about the US and Japan back then. Now it's all about the US and China. You know, China ha- has been, it's the supplier to the world right now. It, just like Russia's the supplier of gas to Europe and all the sh- things that are happening with that, you cut off that supply, all of a sudden you start to realize you're going to have pretty se- severe economic damage in the European economies. And that's happening with China and the rest of the world right now. Scott, you got a question? Uh, yeah, I've got lots of questions, but you were talking early on about the, I think you were mentioning about the velocity of the la- layers on top of Bitcoin providing some velocity. Maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought you had mentioned something about that. Maybe you could, could elaborate on that. Yeah, I watch stablecoin velocity. And some of the stablecoins, of course, are issued on other chains, but stablecoin velocity is, is interesting. These are high velocity, fast settling payment instruments. That's what a stablecoin is. And at one point, Tether's velocity was a thousand times annualized. 
it's down now. I don't know what it is most recently, but it was somewhere around 100. Uh, the, the, all the stable coins have around 100x velocity, M1 velocity. And the US dollar has an M1 velocity of 1.2 right now. <laughs> so huge difference even at the base case, which is 100x annualized velocity. But at one point, Tether was 1,000x annualized velocity. The average Tether turned over almost three times a day, whereas the average US dollar turns over once every 10 months. Huge difference. And so that's my point is that, is that the technology that enables fast settlement, you move on, you're increasing the velocity of your balance sheet when you're using it. So that's a game changer in the payments world. And we can get velocity, we can get the lubrication that money provides for economic development in the real sector. We can get that lubrication through technology as opposed to what we had to do in the past, which is to get it through leverage. So is that that lubrication? Are you uh, were you putting that in reference to like something potentially that could lubricate for Bitcoin? Because is that sort of what you were getting at there? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Bitcoin's in the same and Lightning. They're all in the same category of fast settling assets with finality. You can't reverse a Bitcoin payment. You can reverse an ACH payment for up to well, ACH payments I believe sixty days, but in certain cases you can it can be months. An ACH payment can be reversed, right? You get all these things called chargebacks in the card networks. The reversibility of payments is a huge problem because you don't get settlement finality for quite some time. With Bitcoin, you get settlement finality in 10 minutes, right? Which is on average when the Bitcoin payment ends up in a block. And so these are fast settling instruments. And once once you've gotten legal final settlement or uh, small L legal final settlement, I should say, which is basically settlement according to the rules of the payment system, which is Bitcoin, you've gotten settlement in 10 minutes, you're, you're now free to go use that Bitcoin in another transaction. So what you're doing, if you think back to basic finance, when you're increasing the velocity of your balance sheet, whether you're talking about financial services or whether you're talking about a real company increasing the velocity of its capital, a non-financial company increasing the velocity of its capital, what does that do? It increases your return on capital. So th- these are these are powerful corporate finance tools, Bitcoin and st- and stable coins. Really, anything in the crypto sector that settles fast in the U.S. traditional payments industry, ACH ACH payments settle in uh, the settlement time is measured in days, and with Fedwire, which is not programmable, the settlement time is measured from start to finish in hours. Sometimes it can be over a day as well. Whereas with everything in the crypto industry, you're talking about settlement in minutes, not hours or days. Big difference. You had another question, uh, Scott? Uh, yeah, just uh, kind of going off of that, the Bitcoin settling every 10 minutes were to come up high to scale and you have a lot of things that are not happening on the chain. Mm-hmm. Is this affecting how we're perceiving the settlement time or are we? Yeah. Well, lightning, lightning is a netting mechanism. Okay. Lightning, lightning routing net the lightning payment channels effectively are to Bitcoin what commercial banks are to central bank money with the exception of the fact that there's no leverage, right? So we talked about how a commercial bank takes a dollar of M0 and turns it into $10 of money, M2. In the case of Lightning, they're not using leverage to, to do that. What they're using is the fast, settle, fast settling payments. Now, Lightning channels can settle at the speed of light. You're not waiting because Lightning, you're, not, it, it, it's, you're settling those payments off chain 
you're not, it's only when you close out the lightning payment channel that it's recorded back to the Bitcoin blockchain. So what a lightning payment channel is, is a netting mechanism. Now it turns out most commercial banks don't settle in central bank money, even though they have the ability to, they net payments off against each other. And then it's the net amount that gets settled to central bank money. That's exactly the same thing that's going to happen that is already happening in lightning payment channels relative to the Bitcoin base layer. But the huge difference is that you're not doing it with leverage. You're doing it because these things settle fast. And it's far, far more stable than, than a system that's based on leveraged. So it's already happening. And I think it's just going to keep deepening. That, that scaling technology is here. We're laying that groundwork for, for this to, to tip broadly. We've still got a lot of work to do. I think 4,800 Bitcoin locked up in lightning payment channels right now. That's not that much out of the 19.2 million. But what the aha is, if you're just looking at the 4,800 Bitcoins that are locked up in lightning payment channels, what you're missing is, that, is the velocity of payments that are happening inside those channels. Huge velocity. And that's the point with Tether that we were talking about earlier. Huge velocity. You settle payments at the speed of light, you're freed up now to, to take that same payment instrument and use it again and again and again and again and again. And that's not true with traditional U.S. dollars, which, which take hours or days at best to settle. All right. Can we uh, take more uh, of your time for one more question? Yeah, one more question. I'm just looking at the time here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Call back. Yes. Thank you. What, what a wonderful presentation. Uh, I'm curious on what your perspective is on the transition spot of this collateral position of all the global positions um, that are out there on how how are they on that whole fractional reserve kind of concept that's exploded all around the world and just the volume of the debt that's out there and the, oh, you need to pay me a little bit now. And then I got a, that reverse repo, that whole process. Um, how, how do you see what you're doing up there in Wyoming as it relates to that buffer or what's that transition time frame or what does that look like? Or what, can, give us your take on that, please. Well, I think Sifidine has made this point much better than I have made it, which is that the, the fractional reserve fiat-based system is inherently unstable, but that doesn't mean that when it transitions to something more stable, that it does so with a bang. It might do so with a whimper. And, and, and it's literally just people voting with their feet. We've already seen 3% of the U.S. banking industry's deposits migrate into crypto with people voting with their feet. And that was before the scaling technologies arrived. Okay. And did that create systemic instability? Nope, it didn't. So now that the scaling technologies are here and starting to tip, again, I think Lightning is the most important one, but it's not the only one. There are a lot of people in the Ethereum community who talk about Polygon being a scaling technology. I don't want to open that debate, but I acknowledge that it's there, that there are scaling technologies for other base layer chains as well. Those scaling technologies are going to make even bigger inroads where people will have the ability because the user experience and the payment characteristics are so much better in our new world than in the old legacy world. People will just voluntarily vote with their feet. I am not cheering for a destabilizing transition. I don't want that. If we end up with hyper-Bitcoinization tomorrow, it's going to be a, a very difficult world that we're living in because we're not ready for that as an industry. We have a lot more scaling work, a lot more engineering work, a lot more user interface work to do to make it easier for 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 
non-sophisticated technology users to be able to use our platforms and not even fully understand that they're using them. We've got years of work to do still. And so I'm not of the mind that just let it all burn down now and let's move to something new. And there are a lot of people in our community who do believe that. I don't believe that. I also don't believe that it will happen. Even if I wanted it to, I don't believe it will. I think because of what we just talked about, that there's a dollar short in the euro dollar market that's been building for decades. And this is the reason why the dollar's rallying right now in the face of all the money that's been printed. That's not how, if you looked at it simplistically, you would think, oh my gosh, the dollar's going to collapse. Why is it rallying like it's, like it's rallying? That's why, because it actually, you had to understand that there's a huge short interest in the US dollar and that there's a huge short covering rally that could go on for years. So I, I, I don't know how, how long and how fast it's going to take. I just know the mega trends, so to speak, you can see the mega trends more clearly than you can see the actual path that it's going to take for those mega trends to be adopted. And it's crystal clear to me that Bitcoin is money over internet protocol. You can natively move money around the internet. It takes you a few hours to become a member of these networks. In other words, to get your Raspberry Pi and, you know, sync a node and you become a member of the payment network for a couple hundred dollars worth of equipment and a couple hours of your time. There's no question that that is going to take over relative to the traditional financial industry, which makes all these Rube Goldberg IT systems that are so difficult to to integrate with and where integration time is measured in months and millions of dollars, as opposed to measured in hours and hundreds of dollars, it's so obvious which, which one is going to win. But there's a transition period that has to take place. And that's where we are right now. I think we're at the f- forefront of the transition period to scaling. And to close again with Safedine's analysis, which I agree with, it's not clear to me that, it ex- that, that the old system necessarily has a destabilizing transition to the new. It might be just that it's a relatively stable transition and the old one goes away over a period of a, the next decade with a whimper, not a bang. Thank you. Um, good luck with all your efforts. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. I, I think this is this is kind of the punchline of the fiat standard that I try and make the case for why, the given the way that the fiat system is structured, given the way that it creates money by creating debt and that it destroys money when debt is liquidated, then it might well be the case that we do have an orderly, relatively orderly transition uh, from mm-hmm. fiat to Bitcoin. Although, I mean, again, it, it's difficult to keep maintaining that kind of optimism when you see just the things that fiat world is doing to itself. <laughs> it makes it much harder to maintain that. But I did try to make the steel man argument for that in the fiat standard. I hope readers enjoy it. So, Caitlin, tell us a little bit more about where people can find you and find more of your work. Oh, gosh. Mostly Twitter. <laughs> um, also, uh, LinkedIn. And then, of course, custodiabank.com. Keep your eyes peeled because there will be news coming in the next few months. We'll be laying out a lot of information. We've been quietly getting a lot of work done. And it'll all become clear at some point just how much we've been able to get done. Well, we wish you all the best of luck and we hope to have you back here again, hopefully in better conditions for uh, the world economy and uh, better conditions in the Bitcoin market and less damage everywhere for us to uh, lament over. Yeah, stay safe out there, everyone. And thanks so much, David, for having me back on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Cheers.